0: Tim Graham and Friends is brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst, New York. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client. For assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions, CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, that's 716-630-2400. CTBK, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. Welcome to another edition of Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK. I am Tim Graham of The Athletic here with Matthew Fairburn of The Athletic and Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein and Associates. And uh, we're going to have Matthew Gutierrez. Uh, He covers Syracuse for The Athletic. Uh, He's going to be joining us to talk about uh, Syracuse basketball. He also covers golf, and we're going to touch on uh, Tiger Woods' uh, car accident and uh, some coverage of that and um, just uh, what this means uh, for golf or just uh, when, when something like this happens. Uh, with a sporting icon. Um, Matthew, before we get too far along, uh, I would like to see where your thoughts are regarding J.J. Watt and the evolution of this story. I don't know, just, I mean, your your feelings, uh, the fact that it's gone on this long, uh, is that to be expected? Uh, especially when it comes to a superstar, all of these are individuals, so there's really no textbook on when, when a J.J. Watt's going to sign, but the fact that the bills still very much seem to be in this mix based on reporting um, or the fact that they haven't been eliminated, um, I'll just, the floor is yours. What What's up with uh, just your, what's the gist on J.J. Watt?
1: Yeah, I think it's somewhat to be expected in the sense that this is his first time experiencing free agency. And I think there's a, you know, a, a feeling of wanting to take your time, wanting to maybe soak it in a little bit and, you know, be courted and, you know, take your time making a decision. We also don't know the exact final figure on the NFL salary cap. And so I think that plays a small role, not a huge role, but. <laughs> You know, you could be talking about the difference between 185 and 180 million, and that's a different picture for the Bills or, you know, quite a few other teams, uh, you know, that the Packers, another one that might be in the mix, that are sitting on that edge and may be willing to give them a, a few extra bucks. There's still, you know, cap casualties around the league that are happening. J.J. Watt was the first, but there's others that could open up some more room for some of these teams. And I think there's not... You know, the traditional guy hits the market, guy goes out to dinner with three or four teams and gets the real free agency treatment. It's more of a a slow burning process because he doesn't really get to go through that. And there's still, I I think so many teams are still figuring out so many financial situations. And I do think that's a piece here for JJ Watt, this idea that, you know, I I don't know Um, his thinking um, you know his his camp is you know put some stuff out there through various reporters but I would assume he wants to get paid pretty well I I don't think the NFLPA would be happy if he just took a league minimum salary and you know went went along with his day I, I think he should be paid close to his market value and I don't even know that you can determine his market value without knowing the salary cap. So I think there's, there's some of that, but I would think before free agency, this gets settled soon, you know, they'll have a number on the cap teams will make their decisions. They'll plan it up, everything out. And then you can see just how much JJ Watt can fit into your plans. Um, but it has been, a, it's been a little bit of a weird story. You know, the whole people love deciphering the tweets um, and, you know, I, I don't know, to, there's only so much of that you can do. I feel like before it gets a little bit, uh, a little bit old, but you know, people are having fun with it. JJ Watt seems to be having fun with it. And I don't really blame him considering it's the first and probably only time, well, maybe not only time, cause who knows. Um, but the first time he'll be a, a free agent and the only time I would say he'll be this big of a free agent, he's got the whole stage to himself up until march 17th like why not soak it in and just you know take it for what it's all worth and he certainly seems to be doing that
0: if this were a normal year we would all be in indianapolis right now at the nfl scouting combine and that is where front offices and agents really broker some heavy duty deals over a steak and a whiskey uh at the various uh, restaurants that are out there um I recall seeing uh, Ben Roethlisberger and Tom Condon walking through uh, uh, St. Elmo's, uh, the, uh, the steakhouse there, and uh, probably to meet with the Steelers uh, one offseason. So Ben Roethlisberger, wasn't come, he wasn't in the draft. He had already been in the NFL for years. So J.J. Watt might be in Indianapolis uh, in, in uh, normal circumstances and meeting with all of these teams directly. Uh, with his agents and maybe that would not maybe but probably would speed up the process a little bit uh, everything's done by zoom now it's uh it's probably
1: uh, so so yeah that's taking uh, some of the charm away for that him, could right? drag like, it out sure you know you get to be a free agent and you get you know these great free agency dinners that are just like the stuff of legend um you know you hearing some stories about uh, guys that that get courted via free agency and the late nights they have, you know, the coaches or front office guys trying to convince them. And that seems right up JJ Watts alley, like, you know, trying to um, figure out who he fits with, you know, figure out who he clicks with. and And you don't necessarily get that over a computer screen. I think you can get Surface level, right? Like JJ Watt fits with Sean McDermott because hard work and process and X, Y, and Z. But, you know, I don't know that that's always the case. You know, there's various ways to be a hard working process guy, and those guys don't always necessarily click. I'm not saying they don't uh, or these two wouldn't, but there's something that you miss by not having the in person interaction of, you know, whether it's going out to eat, getting the big steak, you know, getting four or five whiskeys deep and deciding, you know, know, getting to really know some people and and seeing how you click on a certain level. Um, So I think you got to be a little bit more methodical when you're doing that and, and kind of figure out, you know, be patient. because there, there is absolutely no rush for JJ Watt. That's the thing. some of these teams might want to figure it out. There's absolutely no rush for him because his market is his market. I don't think his market's going to collapse in on itself because I don't think it's massive to begin with. I think there's a subset of teams that fit his criteria. And if you're not one of those teams, you're probably not in on him. And so those teams aren't really going anywhere. Wait it out. See what's going on. Um, see see what the cap is, like I said, and, and just um, pick your spot from there as opposed to rushing into it Um, and I think the timeline will get accelerated in the coming weeks as we get closer to free agency, because teams will turn their attention elsewhere at that point. You know, then you're, you're saying, why do we have to sit around and wait for JJ Watt when all these other players are on the market and we can't sit around and wait forever. So, um, yeah, I think good for JJ Watt, drag it out, give people something to talk about, I guess, but, um, I don't think the Bills desperately need JJ Watt. I think it'd be a nice, nice piece. It'd be a nice
0: uh, story for us. It would give us
1: something to talk about. It'd be a great story for us in an otherwise pretty quiet offseason. To you know, this point, the pretty stable offseason. Not a lot of turnover.
0: Yeah, I don't. Even during the Super Bowl years, there seemed to be coaching staff turnover, um, questions, of course. Um,
1: There'll be some cuts here soon for the change in
0: kicker. You know, Scott Norwood's um, got to go. I mean, this is about as stable as you can get with a, with a Bills organization. There's the coordinators are back, the coach is back, the GM's back. We know who the quarterback is. Did I say quarterback already? Um, all the key parts are are there. So
1: they'll have some cuts here soon. Um, I would imagine to clear some room, some restructures, some things like that. And Yeah, they may add a J.J. Watt or maybe they add, you know, a name that I don't think, you know, fits that mold uh, and will be a topic of conversation potentially in March would be Richard Sherman. uh, Also a free agent. Uh, One of those pieces they could add to the defense um, at a potentially reasonable cost. So they'll make they'll have room for like a move or two, you know, some of these, you know, Not necessarily a huge swing, but, yeah, a a J.J. Watt or a Richard Sherman would really uh, spice up this offseason for us, us folks trying to cover it.
2: what do you make of there's been a report that Matt Milano is going to test free agency? Is that what you expected, what what we should have expected, or is that at all an indicator that he's not coming back? Yeah, I think – I,
1: as the season wore on, that became my expectation, just based on patterns that we've seen. Um, For one, Matt Milano switched agents, which is always kind of a, you know, thing in the back of my mind. um, That that was he had a different agent when I don't know exactly when he switched agents, but I know he entered the league with one agent and now he's repped by Joel Siegel, who's a pretty big. Pretty big deal. He, he represents uh, some of the other Bills as well. Some of their big name players. That was sort of a hint, you know, in the back of my mind. And their pattern has been for the most part, particularly with younger players, get those guys locked up before that final year. Like once it gets to that final year and they play the whole thing out, all of a sudden this guy's a couple months from free agency it's a lot more tempting to just say, Hey, I'm going to go try to set the market at my position. Uh, And, you know, he's not, he's a a good player, but you know, you look at the bills financial situation and they signaled loud and clear what was important to them. Deion Dawkins and Tredavious White were more important than Matt Milano, which I think is fair. Uh, I think it was the appropriate uh, ordering uh, on their part. And you can't keep everybody. Now, I think what they might be getting into a situation of is, are they deciding between Tremaine Edmonds and Matt Milano long-term? Because if that's the case, um, you know, that, that's a trickier conversation than the Deion Dawkins-Trey White stuff. So, yeah, I think anytime a young player gets to that point, you saw it last year with, with Jordan Phillips and Shaq Lawson, they get to that point, they've got a couple months, and there's always this – Brandon Bean – does not negotiate through the media, quote unquote, but he's also not, you know, super close to the vest either because at the end of last season, he said, Quentin Spain's already expressed interest in coming back and we're going to try, you know, we can try to get something done. And he said, Jordan Phillips and Shaq Lawson, they had earned the right to test the market. That was at the end of the season in January, kind of a, a signal. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, we're going to – and then at the combine, they say, we're going to try to get something done, you know, whatever – But once they've said that, I think, you know, those players know what's what. And he said that same thing about Matt Milano. So um, yeah, John Morrow had the report last week and um, I would expect, I I would, unless they want to use the franchise tag, personally, I wouldn't, you know, $15 million. I don't know. The guy isn't always healthy. Um, I don't think he's as injury prone as necessarily he gets labeled, but I do think you saw last season that they can survive without him. They're a better team with him on the field, but $15 million is a lot of money for a cash trap team.
0: Speaking of a lot of money for, uh, for the production, although it's not because he's hurt, it's because he's not producing. Jeff Skinner, is he going to get back in the lineup? Uh healthy scratch, two games. Uh, the Sabres uh, win an easy one last night over the New Jersey devils. Um, I don't know, just to throw out there, Jeff Skinner. um, It's kind of hard to trade a guy who's been a healthy scratch too, or it makes it a little more difficult. I don't know. Any, any, anything to say about Jeff Skinner?
2: Doesn't he have to get back in the lineup eventually because of what they're paying him and they're not all that deep on, you know, the bottom six or third and fourth lines to keep this guy as a scratch. Sure. The game, the I was game. being
0: facetious. I don't, I don't think they're going to go on a 20 game winning streak without him, but yeah, he's going to get back in there.
2: I think the question is, does benching him for two games, stir anything up, get him to start producing, or do they figure out a new way to use him? And I don't know the answer to that.
0: My guess Here's is no, because he's no, he didn't score at all last season either. I mean, it's not like it's he's, he needed to be benched to say, Oh, you know what? I guess I need to start scoring. I mean, it's,
1: well, the fancy, if- the, uh, the, the fancy stats suggest that the chances haven't tr- changed dramatically. You know, it's, whether it's lack of finish or whether it's bad puck luck, whatever it may be, uh, but he's also been getting jerked around in terms of the line that he's on, you know, and I think the bigger Sabres question to me, and of course, Jeff Skinner's a, a huge story and dollars that he's making and the way that he's played since basically since that first season hasn't lived up to that contract but at what point do you start asking the question about ralph krueger because we had the conversation the other day about the tendency in this town to be like oh you know football is one thing and and you know bleeding football concepts into hockey it's like oh give him some time to turn this thing around well the Canadians just fired their coach and they're playing well, you know, like that's how it works in hockey. It's like you, things happen quick, you know, and you know, it, it, that can be a big spark for a team and they haven't been that good under Ralph Kruger. They've been pretty lousy and they haven't really shown signs of dramatically improving. Um,
2: He's a hell know. of a communicator though. Sure. Do we, do we know if Kevin Adams has the authority to fire Ralph Kruger? Well, that's, I'm not so sure he does.
1: I think that's the big, the bigger question when it comes to Ralph Krueger is, yeah. Does Kevin Adams have the authority to fire him? Number one. And number two, you know, the words lean and efficient were used, you know, when they were talking about hiring Kevin Adams and redoing the hockey operations department and everything else, are the Pagula is going to going to want to pay a coach who's not coaching for him. Um, Probably not. They and I think other
2: part – I mean, how many are they still paying?
1: Yeah, is Housley still getting paid probably? Maybe. I, uh, I've lost
2: track of I think all so. those I guys. Think the is probably coach. off the books by now, but
0: – Yeah, so I, that's, to me – But I know, think they, a big part of them installing Kevin Adams as the general manager is that he has Ralph Kruger there, and Ralph Kruger with all of his experience, whether it be in hockey or soccer or in the business world or whatever – that as a team these guys have experience or they have the wherewithal to navigate to get rid of ralph Kruger now you're pretty much leaving kevin adams naked
1: yeah they didn't hire
0: a lot of experienced assistants around kevin adams there's not a lot that this hasn't been buttressed at all it's pretty much kevin adams is might actually need ralph Kruger. And the idea, has
1: been, the idea has been kicked around of like, you know, kicking Ralph Kruger upstairs uh, and hiring a coach or something, but I'm not sure what indication he's given that he's particularly sharp in that department either. Um, so I don't know, you know, we had the conversation about Sabres Twitter yesterday and I, I get it, you know, I get where they come from on a lot of this stuff because there's just, you want to see some spark, some signs, and they won last night. So they're um, they have their moments and there's uh, but there's some underlying, you know, troubling big questions that just seem to persist. And I think seeing the Montreal Canadiens fire that their coach this morning was kind of like, Oh, you know, and then, you know, what happens is, you know, those teams snatch up other coaches and, you know, there's good coaches that get recycled around the league and they just sit out there uh, sometimes, you know, not too long. And then they get snatched up by these teams that act quickly and fire their guys. And meanwhile, the Sabres hung on to Housley for a long time. And um, I think there's a tendency for people to Some go. Some people like, oh,
0: say not long enough. John maybe. Murphy got suspended from his radio show for saying the Pagulas acted too rashly.
1: Right. So i and that's part of the, the football mentality bleeding into hockey too much is like, you need three years to build a program and football, you need three, four years, whatever. I don't know, like a little different in hockey with the coach, um, you know, the GM, maybe, you know, give them some time president of hockey operations, perhaps, you know, which doesn't seem to be a, a thing here, but,
0: but this was a whole systemic thing too, based on Kruger. Let's get Kruger's system installed down there in, in Rochester. They got rid of a, a popular coach in uh, uh, Chris Taylor. And it's because it was different mental or different philosophies. So let's go ahead. We need to. So now you're kind of the pagulas have kind of gone all in with Ralph Kruger.
1: Um, and there could be an, a line of thinking of this year is really weird. Uh, and unconventional and they've already gotten a wrench thrown into their season that wasn't much fault or really any fault of their own and so you know maybe just write this one off as kind of a a pass but it's a hard sell to a fan base that has basically done that for a decade um, you know this one is legitimately different it, there's legitimate reasons to just say well this season uh, maybe just going to be random forget about it give them another shot next year but that's a hard sell for not only a fan base that's done that time after time but they went what nine plus months without watching hockey at all without watching their team play at all and then you're going to tell them well that season wasn't worth it either so what they went two plus months or two plus years without (laughs) seeing a legitimate Hockey team, you know, really longer than that. Obviously, about a decade it's been, um, but yeah, it's it's just it's growing increasingly difficult. And I'm very curious to see if they do manage to pull off a plan to
2: get fans in the arena. How many they can even get? Well, but do you think so? If they can only let ten percent in, are they going to have trouble selling those eighteen hundred tickets? Because I think the pent up demand and especially for this season, lack of, you know, lowered capacity reduces that pressure to excite the fan base and have tickets. People are just going to go to the games just because they can. You're probably right. If it's
1: 10%, you know, if they can get closer to 50 or whatever um, by, you know, next season is sort of what I'm thinking about is, like, next fall, um, you know, when they play another hockey season. This year, yeah, if it's 10%, man, if you can't get it, you know (laughs) – 1800 people in the stands and you got bigger problems than i think um i think there's enough people that i mean you could probably get 1800 people to go to a youth hockey game right now people are so you would need uh, 1800 players though because you only get one fan per player right yeah like people are so excited to go (laughs) to sports i think you could get like um you get 1800 people to do a lot of things right now uh but yeah, I think per- that
0: really what needs to happen if there are fans out there that really want to move on from Ralph Krueger and, and, um, and knock the Pagulas off any position of stability or to keep, you know, of keeping things the way they are, you need to re uh re-institute the group howl get group howls going for um, all things that knock the Sabres further down in the standings uh, for opponent scoring goals. And, uh, you know, let, let, uh, the Pagulas know that, uh, it's time to gut this organization again.
1: Group how is it got it done before. I was even thinking like, well, maybe they'll end up with a high pick again. And then I, I, I had almost totally forgot that they had a number one pick, you know, that you think of Eichel and Reinhardt is like, that was the era when they were collecting the top picks and you know it didn't totally work out but they got some good players and i'm like oh yeah they also had another number one pick like how many do they need uh old, sully likes to point out the whole roster is practically top 10 picks like i don't know how many of those they need uh it's a yeah it's it's the weird ground you get in in sports where it's like a team is bad but you almost need to let something play out a little bit you know to decide how bad or when to change and It's just a probably a pretty frustrating existence. But, hey, the season's so random that if they rip off a 10-game winning streak, they've got a lot of the pieces that help to rip off that 10-game winning streak. That's a much bigger chunk of this season than any other. So random things can happen in hockey if, if their luck starts to change. So maybe we'll be having some different conversations on Tim Graham and friends
0: down the road. Before we get to Matthew Gutierrez and talk about uh, Syracuse hoops and also uh, Tiger Woods, uh, Jono got a, got a big rivalry uh, this weekend. Uh, the games, uh, I guess, they were rescheduled. I think they were. Uh, Canisius and Niagara are going to square off. And uh, what, can you give us a little preview of, of these two teams? And uh, it's a big four matchup uh, in the Metro Atlantic. And actually two teams that are, that are doing okay this year.
2: Yeah, I mean, Canisius is over five hundred. Niagara is a game under five hundred. Canisius had won five in a row before they lost uh, against Fairfield on Saturday or Sunday last weekend. It was rescheduled. It was supposed to be played March fourth and fifth. Now it's being played both noon games, Friday and Saturday. It's it's always a big rivalry game and exciting game, even when the teams aren't very good. Now there won't be any fans there, so it's a little bit different. And even the TV, it's ESPN plus ESPN three. Normally, Canisius-Niagara is a game that at least once a year, the MAC puts it on TV, one of those ESPNU games. That's not the case with these two games coming in. But, you know, I'm looking forward to it because it's always a good way to gauge how good these two teams are when they play each other, I think. And Canisius has a series against Siena, who is the first-place team in the MAC, coming up next weekend. This will be Niagara's last regular season games probably – before the tournament something could get rescheduled but right now that's not there so I think these two games will give us a really good sense of whether either one of these teams can make a run in the MAC tournament and ultimately record-wise it could determine how successful their season is whether it's a winning season or not and there's some big games uh, St. Bonaventure plays at Davidson tonight that's a pretty big game for their bubble hopes and They're trying to win the Atlantic 10 regular season championship. They're tied for first place right now. UB has a home game against Central Michigan tomorrow after another big 28-point win last night. They're going to be playing at Ohio on Saturday. That's a big game for Ohio. So everybody's off pause and in action and kind of we're getting to March. This is the last week of February, and it's going to be March Madness pretty soon. Syracuse will not be making
0: the tournament this year.
2: Unless we're they talking about the, the, ACC, but the NIT.
0: Oh, they, yeah. They'd have to win the ACC, but they can't beat terrible Duke. They, which is all right. So losing to Duke by 14 points uh, in most years is okay. That happens, but Duke is not good this year.
2: Syracuse. Uh, right. And Syracuse isn't very good either, but I wouldn't necessarily write them off. Syracuse has made runs to win back when they were in the big East tournaments, when they were a lower seed, that zone. If they get hot shooting the ball and the way they play that zone defense, they overperform in postseason situations often. I don't really think they will. I don't think they have a good enough team this year to pull that off, but I wouldn't rule them out yet.
0: All right. Well, let's bring in Matthew Gutierrez. Uh, He covers Syracuse for the Athletic uh, uh, right after this on Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK. Tim Graham and Friends is brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst, New York. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client. For assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions, CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, that's 716-630-2400. CTBK, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. Joined now by Matthew Gutierrez. He covers Syracuse for The Athletic, both basketball and football. And uh, we're going to get into what's going on with Jim Bayheim and his crew this year, what's not going on with them. And uh, we're already looking towards next season when it comes to
3: Syracuse basketball. Uh, Matthew, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you guys for having me. Thank you. It's a blast. Always, always looking for recruiting at this point. Not always the case in late February here, but this is, this is where we're at right now.
0: Yeah, this is the equivalent to a football writer of uh, talking about the draft in November. Or December, yeah. Well, there's no playoffs to worry about. Although in college basketball, uh, the industry has made it a point that everybody gets post postseason or post tournament uh, action. Um, I don't think that Syracuse is going to be in the. What are they? The the CF the the CB what 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 are these the Reggie <laughs> Witherspoon uh, old tournaments <laughs> that they used to be in? Not playing any of
2: them this year. What's that, Jonah? They're not having those tournaments this year. At all?
3: Is there an NIT? The'll, NIT, yes. Okay. Yeah, I, don't, I think Jonah's right. The others, yeah, no. Uh, I think so the NIT yeah, will be
2: eight teams in New York. I don't know if they've announced it yet, but I think was John Feinstein said, that's what, what it's going to be.
0: Yeah. Does Syracuse qualify for that, Matt? Matthew?
3: Uh, yeah, they probably will, I would imagine, unless they, they go on free fall here down the stretch. But, yeah, absolutely. I think they, they're an NIT team. It'll be at the Garden. Uh, coming up, you know, in just a few weeks here, but yeah, on the outside looking in of, of the NCAA tournament on the bubble seemingly every year since 2014, it's, you know, hashtag bubbleville uh, that has been the nicknames uh, the past several years coming off the, you know, the winningest stretch in program history was 09 to 2014. Uh, and since then you had the NCAA sanctions and then just basically bubble, bubble team, bubble team, bubble team uh, from here on out.
0: How much, is that directly attributed to being in the ACC, do you think? I know it kind of coincides with it, but is that
3: just coincidence? I think it's it's partly for sure in the competition level. I think no doubt when you're playing Virginia and Florida State and North Carolina and, you know, even the Virginia Techs and NC States have, have you know, proved to be a little bit of a challenge at times. Georgia Tech has given them fits, absolutely. Uh, I think something to be said there, the recruiting is – has gone up a little bit in the ACC. This is a down year for the conference, but Syracuse is facing better competition, and hence, you know, they're playing about 500 ball every year. Even the Sweet 16 team in 2016 was about 500 in league play. The, um, the final, I'm sorry, the Final Four team in 16, and then the, the uh, Sweet 16 team two years later. You know, they're, they're floating in the middle of the pack right in the ACC. They they beat up on the the bottom half of the league and they struggle with the, the top teams. That's pretty much the way it's going. It's, you know, really mostly a, a recruiting drop-off has, has been the lead reason of that. Part of that's Florida related to the sanctions. Uh, part of that probably due to, due to competition. You
1: think the future holds for, you know, short and long-term for, for Jim Boeheim. Um, you know, obviously one of those college basketball coaches sort of entrenched in, in his job, but how many years does he have left? And you know, how has he handled this latest kind of dry spell
3: for the program? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, Keys fans have talked about it after every loss, especially. <laughs> you know, you see the uh, uh, some of the fans who, who want him to go home or just want to start thinking about a succession plan. Uh, reality is, you know, he's going to stay at Syracuse at least through Buddy's career. His son is a junior guard right now, one of the top scorers on the team. The last two years, really can shoot the three well. Uh, he's been a little up and down this year. He had COVID himself, which really, you know, set him back as a shooter. Understandably, would um, and, and made him more fatigued. But um, yeah, I think I think Coach Bam stays for definitely Buddy's career in the NCAA. Has given everyone an extra year, so you're looking at two additional seasons. That puts Jim Bayheim through at least 2023 which would be uh, his 40, end of his 47th season at the helm of his alma mater. So they're approaching 50 there. He'd be almost 80 uh, years old. But, you know, to his credit, he said he feels good. He's in, he's in good health. He's enjoying it. Uh, as far as the, the 500 play, he certainly addressed it. And he basically says, look, I'd rather have a, you know, a surprise Sweet 16 run, a surprise uh, Final Four every, every decade or every few years than go, you know, finish second or third in the ACC, but go out on the first weekend of the tournament. So that's how he's looked at it past few years. A lot of fans are frustrated with uh, how norms have sort of, you know, fallen off, right? I mean, this is a Syracuse team that used to be pretty much parked in the top 25 most of the winter. Uh, the past, you know, really from 09 to 14, obviously a lot of successful stretches before that. Uh, but since then, they, they really haven't been a ranked team since 2014 consistently, which is – it's come it's seven years now, which is, you know, it's hard to believe. But they don't quite have that national uh, footprint, I think, they used to.
0: Matthew, let's dig into that for a little bit. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts. As somebody who's uh, based in Syracuse, uh, you're a graduate. You wrote for the school paper. Uh, so it's uh, – you didn't just parachute in on this job. You know the history of the program. You know what Jim Beheim means – in uh, to the university, to the community, what do you? What's the dynamic like of a legend who people certainly respect for all that he's done, and yet there's this this population, and I don't know if it's younger or if it's current students mostly or what. Maybe you can break it down for us of people who are ready to see him go, uh, and I think that that's a phenomenon you get even with. I, I go, I'm go. i going to cross sports and go back a long way. But Chuck Knoll with the Pittsburgh Steelers, the guy won four Super Bowls and fans were just ready for him to go. T- Tom Landry with the Cowboys, uh, Marv Levy with the Bills. They were ready for him to go at some point. And I think that, you know, there's probably some better and more recent examples of this. Um, but J- here's Jim Beheim, and you think, oh, okay, who's going to replace him? Um, I don't know. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. There's a question in there somewhere, but what's it like to, to see this evolve over time where people are just like, well, maybe it's time for a change.
3: For sure. I mean, you know, really, I joke, you know, with some friends who graduated with me is that kind of ever since we were, you know, started applying to Syracuse slash got in mostly for the, for the journalism school. Uh, they just haven't been the the program they were. Right. And it's uh, it has coincided with the ACC uh, as you said, but yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, with any fan base, obviously there's a subset of fans who, you know, through and through with Coach Behan, they trust that he'll turn this around with a couple really strong recruiting classes, which obviously is is certainly possible. And he could go out his last few seasons and, and on a bang, and maybe you know another deep postseason run, no doubt about that. And then I think there is another subset of the population. You know, I think it's a mix. It's younger people. I think it's people who have been around the program since the 70s and 80s who will even write, you know, sometimes in comments off stories uh, on our site or or off. Um, off tweets and Facebook posts and, and say, you know, we're, we're super appreciative uh, for what he's done and building this program, literally building it basically from a small private school uh, in upstate New York into a, a national brand, right, a team that has gone to a Final Four in every decade since the 70s, uh, a team that's, you know, been ranked, that's produced dozens of NBA players, uh, a handful of NBA All-Stars, and a, and a team that's really, uh, you know, as far as compared to uh, program norms just just falling off a bit you know it'd be interesting to see how it plays out long term right is it a similar situation to to UCLA which um, you know obviously had a long long stretch of of winning and then you know hasn't quite been at that level since really 2002 uh, looking bigger picture and you know it's too early to tell for that Uh, what Syracuse does have though is 51 straight winning seasons which they just locked up again they're 13 and 7 so even if even if they really struggle here down the stretch, uh, they'll, they'll be all right. I mean, they still have that streak going for them. So some fans will will, uh, will point to that as a reason for optimism. They have their first five-star recruit in Benny Williams from the Maryland area, usually a you know rich of, of Syracuse talent over the years. Maryland, D.C., Baltimore, of course, with Carmelo. Um, and they have him coming in, first five-star in, in seven years. So uh, there's there's some hope there that they can build on Benny. What he brings, 6'8 forward, and try to have another class in 2022 that, you know, some semblance of what the classes they used to get, you know, about a decade ago where it was just routinely top 20, top 10 classes.
2: When it comes to recruiting, it seems like one way or the other, the, the one and done era is winding down, whether it's going to be a rule change with the NBA or more of these players going to the G League, overseas, interning at New Balance, whatever they do for that gap year in between high school and the pros Uh, do you think that helps syracuse's recruiting position do you see them adjusting at all they had carmelo anthony probably the best one and done and and a few other good one and done freshman players Uh, do you i think some schools are going to be helped by that and some will hurt you how do you think syracuse fits into that mix
3: yeah that's a good question i I don't know if it impacts them as much as some other programs um obviously it's coincidence syracuse's one national championship came with uh, you know probably the best example of a one and done guy in Carmelo and, and winning obviously a ton of awards and going for over 20 points a game leading that team uh, as a freshman first freshman to, to lead a national title team in scoring so you know it's, it's funny how they have, have had Mark lead the title but other, other than Carmelo that really hasn't been a one and done shop like Duke obviously Kentucky even Carolina um, to an extent there's a couple other schools now that have you know, attracted five-star guys and and shipped them off right after a year. Syracuse uh, has never, for the most part, had that as their formula. Coach Behan, you know, even said last fall, he's looking for guys who, uh, after one of their best recruits in a while, decommitted, you know, verbally, and DeHorre Johnson, who's from uh, Saugerties, New York, and In-State uh, kid. Uh, once he decommitted, Behan made it very clear, look, we're looking for guys who want to stick around for two three and even four years and develop in our program. Uh, we're not looking for guys who are thinking about the NBA and just want to, you know, boost their draft stock when they're on the, inside the program. So I don't think that trend hurts uh, this team at all. Syracuse is as you know, it's best teams. It's built around, you know, not so much top 20 guys, but uh, four stars players who, you know, maybe are in the, the 80th in the class and, and overachieve and really develop at Syracuse. That's their, it's been their bread and butter on their good teams you think of I think Jeremy Grant's a perfect example wasn't uh, you know highly highly touted out of high school I think he was like 80th in his class class of 2012 comes to Cuse as sort of secondary to a a better recruit who didn't pan out as much Uh, and then Jeremy had two really good years and now he's a borderline all-star with the Pistons you know making 20 million a year so that's kind of the the bread and butter for Q's It's those types of players who really develop over time. Don't know if the one and done impacts them as, as much, but they are going after some, some top guys in this next class here 2022.
2: What is your sense about Dior Johnson? Because if he did come to Syracuse, I think he'd be the highest rated recruit they've had in, in a very long time, maybe since Mello. Buffalo was the first school to offer him back when he was an eighth grader. He's, he's clearly probably beyond that level now, but I know you've written about him and talked to him. What is your sense on
3: where he ends up? Yeah, he's, uh, he is the best recruit since Carmelo. So you're looking at basically 20 years. Uh, I think he was born right around when, when Mello won the national championship at Cuse. And, you know, there was a lot of optimism in what he was going to do. Obviously, he was going to be a one-year guy in college. Um, I think that's, that's the consensus. Um, you know, I, I don't know where he ends up. He reopened his, his recruitment. I don't know if he goes straight pro. There's a number of opportunities now for guys just to hop out of high school um, and go play professionally, not necessarily – in the nba either so he'll have obviously plenty of options i know he's still being recruited by some programs he's you know posted about louisville and in, in recent weeks and there's you know rumors that he could still end up committing verbally at least to another uh high major program so he's someone interesting to watch out for on the other hand i mean look he's been to i think four high schools now five high schools a lot of questions about that you know uh, an nba scout had texted basically when he saw he left Oak Hill Academy after not playing a single game Oak Hill also where Carmelo played uh, a number of other top guys uh, texted quote red flag when he saw that Dior um, had, had just left Oak Hill and obviously decommitted from Syracuse. So, you know, questions about, um, you know, his commitment might be, might be warranted from some NBA teams, but, but undoubtedly, undoubtedly a really talented player, um, just electric with the ball. Um, Like you said, he, Piled up a ton of offers starting when he was, what, 13, 14 years old and was a celebrity as a 10th grader in, in uh, Kingston. So he's a, he's a guy who probably one of the better New York State talents uh, in the past couple decades as far as his, his upside goes.
0: Matthew, what's your your philosophy or your mindset when it comes to covering recruiting? Um, because you just mentioned you know, all those, you know, a long list of twists and turns. That's just one player. And when you're at a program like Syracuse, covering a program like Syracuse, they go after players that are heavily covered as teenagers or eighth, you know, before that, what's eighth grade, I guess you're still a teenager in eighth grade. Um, I guess what, what's it like covering fickle kids and these parents? And, and I, I've done it on such a superficial level. It would drive me nuts um, but it's such a focus of any major college programs, uh, journalism. You need you need to do it. Um, I, I guess what your your thoughts on on how how you do it and still maintain your sanity?
3: Sure. I mean, recruiting is you know obviously arguably the most important thing for for a college coach. Obviously, you want to develop and run practice drills and and you know know how to run a manage a huddle right and manage issues within your team during the season, but I mean, you need players, to obviously, to compete at a high level, and it's a little bit like the Wild Wild West, obviously, with with there are there are rules with what they can do, and COVID has obviously limited all in-person recruiting. But um, there's so much, you know, that changes with these guys, and and texts, and um, you know, obviously, there's been plenty of of scandal over time and and violations. Uh, so you have that that to deal with. But to your point, I mean. For the most part, it's not really the kids who who are difficult to deal with. A lot of them are, you know, just trying to earn a scholarship and and play the game they love. And that's there's there's a lot of um, great great value in that. And I enjoy covering that part and talking to the kids about you know what what they look forward to doing and what kind of schools they're interested in. Uh, it's really just like the people around them, whether it's high school coaches, AAU coaches, trainers, um, and you know Jay Billis has talked about it, you know, plenty. Uh, but they're just there's a lot of pressure a lot of the expectations on these guys uh, you know start at this school you know get this many meds here transfer if you don't play you're going to the league in two years of college there's a lot of pressure put on them and I think it just creates uh, extraordinary expectations that are really difficult to get met and and it can lead to disappointment you know and frustration and, and I don't think that's that's fair to the, to the players. So absolutely love recruiting. Uh, just some, some of the, you know, barriers, if you will, that that end up popping up can, can make it a little bit of a hassle, but it's, again, it's, it's incredibly important for programs to, to recruit at a high level to, to play well.
2: Can I ask you about one recruit that I know you did at least some reporting on Roddy Gale from Niagara Falls. He, he's committed to Ohio state. Syracuse was in his top five, maybe even his top two when he made that decision just from the the people you talk to, what do you think about him as a prospect, if he was, to have come to Syracuse and, you know, where he ends up playing?
3: Yeah, he's he was certainly uh, on Syracuse's radar. He was, you know, really a guy they wanted, obviously, the New York State kid. Um, you know, they sold him on being sort of the next Johnny Flynn from from that area, another really talented uh, PG who, you know what, as, as a lot of people in the NBA will remind you, went ahead of Steph Curry in the, in the I think it was the 09 mm-hmm. or what was it? draft uh, So uh, I think Roddy's an excellent player. Uh, I had spoken with him last summer when Syracuse was really trying to, trying to get a commitment from him. Uh, you know, he talented player. I think he's going to, Ohio state is having an outstanding season, by the way. I think he's, going to a program that, that seemingly is, is on the is on the upswing here. And uh, I think he, he he saw that, right? He saw a program that's not far from home. That meant a lot to him, he said. And uh, I think he picked, you know, he made a made a really good choice for a for a great coach and, a, and again, a program that's uh not just a by far not just a football school. Uh with Roddy, you know, Jerry McNamara was really recruiting him hard. You know, I think texting him early in the morning, you know, can't wait to work out with you at this time. And it just didn't didn't end up uh, working out. And, you know, he just, he didn't, you know, explain exactly why not Syracuse, but he felt, I think Ohio state was just where he wanted, he envisioned himself. And I think that staff did a really good job in, in recruiting him.
0: What would push me to Ohio state is if Ohio state's assistant coaches were texting me at like three in the afternoon and saying, looking forward to working out with you at this time. And then I'd say, Oh, I, all right, I'm going to Ohio state. Yeah. And that early morning text about working out might've backfired.
3: <laughs> could have right you never know I mean sometimes you don't know what what uh impacts these kids right some guys obviously like to get in late late at night and, and get some shots up I don't I mean uh, it could be Jer- Jerry's um I've worked really hard on on trying to recruit and I think there's no question the staff has dealt with you know obviously the sanctions limited how many could be on the road recruiting and then also the number of re- recruits they could land in scholarship count. Know, So you know they've had a couple barriers there. Those are those are behind them though right now. And so right now they're they're certainly facing an uphill battle. But you know as far as Roddy goes, I don't think that's a huge quote unquote miss uh, for Syracuse. Really, they need to land. It's it's obvious, right? They need to land a a a legit power five center, right? At this point, Coach Bam has even said last year on ESPN Rochester, um, quote, I've done a bad job recruiting big men, Uh, and it's clear, right? They just don't have that strength inside on the back side of the zone you look at any good Syracuse team they had a rim protector you know right now they don't that's a another lead reason for being 500 in league play so you know Ron Roddy's a really talented player he's not not a miss at all I think for they need they need some big guys inside. Matthew
0: Gutierrez has covered golf also and uh, I'd like to ask him about Tiger Woods. But before we get to that, I want to make sure with uh, Matt Fairburn or Jonah, any
2: more uh, basketball questions? I don't want to,
0: I don't want to. Yeah, uh... I, had,
2: I had one more. Uh, sure. Buffalo had played at Syracuse earlier in the year. And there were some comments coming out of that game from Jim Beheim. Wasn't happy with the way that game finished. Some of the things that were said by Buffalo players, Buffalo bench. He didn't, I don't know who specifically, but my question is, he had indicated that Syracuse might be done playing Buffalo. That, that the way that game ended left a sour taste in Beheim's mouth. I read that as Beheim whining, as he is wont to do. Do you? What do you take from those comments? Do you think maybe that series is going to end because of how that game played out?
3: Yeah, long, long-standing series, no doubt. I mean, it makes it a no-brainer, right, drive drive on on route 90 and, and play some basketball in november or december um obviously with coach oats uh i think it was what two three years ago upset in the dome um you know arguably buffalo was the best uh, team in new york state that year and probably, probably was and look at look what he's doing now at alabama top 10 mm-hmm. program i mean the, the guy's just winning uh but yeah you know i take coach bam's comments to be exactly that i don't i don't know if if buffalo will Will play Syracuse at least in Beheim's tenure. Whether that's two more years or five more years, it could be the latter. Um, so, yeah, I think he, he did not like that. That Buffalo was was talking smack throughout that game. Buffalo, by the way, had an outstanding first half in that game, scored I think almost 50 points against the zone. Really, it was Buffalo's game to to lose there, and they ended up not not finishing it, finishing it out there. I thought they were the better team. In that game as <laughs> sitting courtside. But um yeah, a lot, a lot of trash talk throughout that game. I didn't think it was excessive at all. I thought it was, you know, definitely above average, but I don't think it was no one across the line or anything. And and so I think, you know, they probably felt, you know, between a couple of close games, you lost to Buffalo, maybe, you know, it's not, it's not worth bringing them back when you can, you know, beat a Cornell or Niagara. I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's the thought process there. I didn't, I didn't see it being excessive at all at, at any point. A
0: convenient excuse, perhaps Matthew.
3: Could be. Absolutely. I mean, it's, I was given Q's fits quite a bit, even in the couple losses, I think that they were not uh, your usual Syracuse rollover, you know, Cornell and St. St. Bonaventure. And sometimes, uh, or Colgate, you know, not, not a team of that, that caliber.
0: Then get Niagara and Canisius in there. They'll take those games.
3: <laughs> sure. And the athletic department won't mind too with some, you know, hundred, 200 grand coming in.
0: All right. So Tiger Woods and his accident yesterday, and we're still learning uh, as we're recording this uh, right now on, on Wednesday, really uh, everything that Tiger Woods has uh, gone through the, the latest uh, is that he's well, when they're, reporting, when they're reporting that he's awake and responsive, uh, it leads me to wonder what we don't know yet. Because to say that a guy who's had a couple of leg surgeries is awake and responsive uh, seems to me, I don't know if it's overkill in terms of the coverage, uh, but maybe there's some more issues that we don't know about anyways. I don't want to get into what we don't know about, um, but as somebody who's covered golf, and uh, Tiger Woods, in many ways, is larger than golf. Uh, how were you following uh, the news yesterday
3: with his uh, his single car accident? Sure. I mean, well, first of all, our, our lead golf writer, you know, Brendan Quinn, who also covers uh, Michigan and Michigan State, I thought did a good good job touching on it. You know, and you know, he did a little bit of a of a look back to the 2009 accident Tiger had, obviously under completely different circumstances. We think. Um, uh, but drawing, drawing some parallels and, and contextualizing it a little bit. So I thought that was a good piece to, to check out for people. Um, but yeah, as far as, you know, what I thought of immediately was, you know, thankfully he's alive and and didn't no one else got hurt, right? I mean, to, to cross another, you know, to cross the other lane and then go several hundred feet off the road, I think it was, uh, obviously is, is concerning and hopefully, you know, thankfully again, no one was coming the other way. Uh, i think someone said i believe in the police department there i read somewhere that you know thankfully he's alive and basically wearing his seatbelt saved him so i think just starting there that was my first thought right i mean he's he's lived what seems to be a, a really bad accident especially the way the car looked um in those images i mean it was it was striking um you, your client was looks like just just leg related you know lower half injuries which doesn't uh, mean life threatening so uh if, if you're looking for a positive there right it's that he's he's alive no one else got hurt coming the other way um I think that's the the best view at this point and then just looking to see you know obviously a top five name in sports you know in comparison top three even right now I mean everyone knows Tiger one word um you know how much he means saw the support that came out from the golf world and, and uh, celebrities elsewhere on, on social there. So I think it just speaks to the sheer, sheer volume and and um, popularity he, he has and the weight his name holds. So, um, you know, thankfully he's, uh, he seems to be at least hanging in.
0: How many times have you covered a tiger, would you say, or been in situations with at tournaments or even superficially? um I had, uh, I guess I, I guess it's an honor to have covered it. I don't know. I don't, maybe I don't want to go overboard with it, but I covered his first PGA win. It happened to be in Las Vegas when I was in Las Vegas. And my job for that tournament was to follow Tiger around because our golf writer was writing about the tournament. And here's this young kid out of Stanford. And it's like, Tim, you got the sidebar duty, which was really the headlining duty. And I covered, well, I covered, john daly for the first round which was a treat uh but then i covered tiger for the rest of it and uh yeah so i'll always look back on that as a pretty cool moment because he is larger than life so even when you cover you know as ancillary as my assignment was i mean that was that's one i'll remember
3: for sure um it's something i remember as well i think it was i've only been at two events where he where he was i focused mostly on lpga last year but a couple summers ago um, he was at uh, Shinnecock Hills on Long Island in the 2018 U.S. Open. Um, so I covered him there. Uh, I ended up writing a story about him, I think, on the second or, or third day. Um, obviously, pretty much in any major, right? Your, your outlet's probably going to write about Tiger and Phil. And, uh, yeah, I just remember the, the crowds for him, man. I mean, he wasn't even in contention, really. And, you know, four or five deep everywhere he went, you know, Past the um, past the lines and, and uh, the ropes, so he was uh, revered. Even though I don't I don't think he was remotely in contention or even playing great. Uh, I think he was he was doing okay. But yeah, you know the the classic getting the whole screams after you know he tees off on a on a par five and um, you know just a lot of people there to to cheer on someone they either grew up watching or or just grew to you know fell in love with the game. Uh, maybe because of him. And there was, there was definitely plenty of that um, throughout the whole, the whole week. I mean, the draw, you know, he, he at times was drawing more, you know, more fans than, than the leaders were, you know, and that just, again, speaks to, you know, the player he has been. What do you notice about, I mean, particularly on a day like
1: yesterday, the, find it interesting, the, the impact he's had on this generation of golf or of guys that are, you know, in their 20s and probably not necessarily they weren't of age to appreciate necessarily what he was doing at the time, but he still seems to have made an impact on them. And you see it with guys like Justin Thomas and, and just like the emotional reactions that you see. What did you make of of seeing some of that
3: trickle through in the golf world yesterday? Yeah, for sure. I mean, speaks to, to you know, what, what he's done. I mean, there's there's guys he's playing with now that that are playing in some cases because of him or, or, strove to work hard and be a pro and aspire for that, you know, because of him, because they watched him. Uh, it's, it's been, uh, you know, obviously full circle in, in many ways uh, with, with a lot of these uh, elite players, you know, who, who, uh, who followed him. I even remember, you know, not about me, but I think it was like you know, probably second or third grade summer camps, you know, golf camps and, and they would, you know, at classic show us, you know, tapes of, of tiger coming back and on Sundays and, and the roar of the crowds. I think, you know, Pebble beach was probably one of the top clips in those. Uh, and so, you know, just having watched the tiger documentary, I don't know if you all got to see it uh, just a few weeks ago that came out, I was at HBO or Showtime or one of those. Right. And uh, you know, a lot of those clips get played and it's, it's, you know, as repeat as they can be. And as uh, you know, cliche as they sometimes show up, it's uh he's transformed you know the game obviously and, and brought a whole new audience to uh to the sport what um what non-tiger golf storylines
1: are you you interested in following this summer i'm sure you've had a chance to kind of more chance to think about it than you would during a more competitive basketball season but uh you know lpga or pga what what, what golf
3: uh storylines are hooking you so far yeah i mean i'm you know you guys know right it's pretty nice out uh today and i'm, I'm hoping that march is next week and you know maybe we can uh
0: you're, you're uh, in syracuse right Yep. Yeah. it's nice out today is it there's like
3: 45 out today yeah, here I mean, in buffalo I
1: mean, so it's not, it's i not need 10. to poke my head out i do
0: hear <laughs> things melting off my house i have yes i'm more concerned with this basement issue which is it's
1: 52
0: uh, degrees matthew doesn't know about it but uh the ba- my basement issue i'm i'm not happy with this warming warming weather uh I'm going to be clearing water out of my basement. I'm sorry, Jonah, you were saying,
2: no, i just say it's 52 degrees out
0: right now. 52. Recording this. T-shirt weather. Yeah. It's I guess fun. I'm going to have to go rake leaves.
3: Yeah. So I'm, I'm uh, certainly thinking about it. I think some people are at least around here trying to get out next month and, and play if, uh, if the snow you know fully melts and of course, isn't, you know, a swamp, um, but yeah, I mean, as far as this year, you know, I, I love the LPGA because it doesn't get the set, you know ton of media coverage, and uh, you know, you can talk to players, you know, one on one during a major, and I think those golfers, you know, probably don't get as much respect as as they may deserve. I mean, they the women, you know, they can still crush the ball. Uh, they they play really well, um, and there's some outstanding uh, athletes on that tour, and um, you know, I think their are number of you could go down the list right there's so much talent uh, anyone can really win in, in a lot of these uh, majors and so much young talent too but as far as the men's side go i mean you know obviously bryson's a a, a good story and someone interesting um to follow. you know i i was interested to see what how tiger was going to be able to come back from you know a fifth back surgery uh, i think he had surgery right around christmas time uh, so he was still obviously in pretty much recovery mode. I don't think he was going to participate in the Masters. It didn't seem that way. Um, but I was looking forward to seeing him, you know, in the summer. Uh, obviously, we don't know, you know, what his situation will be will be this year. Uh, golf fans hoping, hoping for the best for him. Another, you know, seemingly lower half issue. He's had his, you know, fair share of, of golf-related knee problems as well. So, uh, you know, as far as Bryson, I mean, Justin Thomas – uh you know it's exciting player as well there's, you know you go down the list man and that's, uh i'm just excited to see some sun and, and hopefully get out to an event this year i got to you know persuade my my editors maybe i can get to one this summer
0: yeah i don't just to touch back on on tiger again maybe it's i don't know if it's reckless of me to say this and i've already mentioned it um so maybe i shouldn't but the, but as journalists for journalists on this call I do circle back to the wording that's being used in regard to covering this. And I, again, I'm torn between whether or not it's just because it's Tiger and everybody's covering the new every little uh, grain of what's going on here. Uh, But it seems as though some of the things that people are getting um, are making it a point to report seems to think that there that if you are covering this, maybe there's some things that have been that are known within the golfing community or people who are on the scene, but they're not quite reporting yet as to how bad this is. Because again, uh, to say that the guy's responsive after having a
2: couple leg surgeries, you would think, well, no shit, but. But the they, reporters aren't in the hospital, so they can only report what's being fed to them. I, I don't, I would question whether Well, even a the doctor doctors are saying
0: again. he's alert. He's, you know, how joy, you know, how, how it's, this is good news. He's responsive. We're like, well, <laughs> Well, I didn't know. Was I supposed to be worried about whether he wasn't going to be when he, you know, that's, that's the thing as a journalist where my radar is up. And again, maybe it's reckless of me to say, so Jonah, good for you to put me back in my place. <laughs> I
3: think I people my, see the
1: car, you know, they see the car, they see it's Tiger Woods. I, I don't know. It's almost a year after Kobe there. It just triggers a lot of um, those types of feelings for people. When you see a guy with that name and you see the the shape the car was in, And but it does I think it was an illuminating journalism day in general seeing the way cable news kind of you know the information that's coming out in bits and pieces and you know some of the way it's covered the t- twitter and cable news not built for serious car crashes frankly like you know i think one of those things where we need the information very well you know people because of who he is because of the the, the past that he has want to draw lines and, and, you know, assume some things, but we just don't know. And I think that's, yeah, it, I was interested in the level of detail in the statement from Tiger Woods camp because they are, I think that was helpful because there are a lot of people, like you said, Tim, that may take a wording or a phrase and say, wait, like he's responsive, like what's going on? Is he going to need, you know, like to just get real details? That's why I hope
0: it's overkill. I hope it's just people, I think I hope it's oversharing. Yeah. Uh, I hope that's the case.
1: Hopefully. Um, Yeah. We don't know. We'll see what, you know, comes out and, you know, if they're able to get any more details, but, you know, I think not the, not the the best uh, event for the modern day Twitter cable news machine. Even
0: official words were wrong. The L.A., uh, I believe it was the L.A. Sheriff's Department, came out with the very first statement in which it mentioned the jaws of life were used, and then the fire department came back later, hours later, and said, no, the jaws of life weren't used. It was a normal extraction. And that's a big piece of news. When you hear jaws of life, uh, that casts a a certain feeling or a tone over the whole thing, and then it's like, no, no, he was just extracting. So anyways, even the official words have been not too reliable but um clearly an an icon's icon in the sporting world and um yeah hopefully hopefully it is just being overcovered which is i guess good right i mean more journalism you
3: know, i don't know in a manner of speaking matthew you're the knowledge.
0: guest your thoughts on it
3: yeah i mean no to matthew's point i just think you know the, the images were were uh, were striking right to see that car in just a wrecked situation and to see it having crossed the median and crossed another lane. Um, another, you know, basically it looked like somewhat of a, I'm not familiar with the area, but semi-highway um, uh, or at least an area that you would think would, could have a lot of cars. Um, it was that, four
0: lanes. So it was right. built up to be, to handle two lanes of traffic going each direction.
3: Yeah. Which nowadays, in
0: Southern California, yeah. though, because everything is relatively new, could be a gated community with, you know, that gets a car every 15 minutes. But uh, it didn't seem that yeah. way.
3: Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I just again, that that the, the pictures, though, I think could, could lead one to 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 assume or, or project, um, you know, something really horrible had happened or or, you know, there was um you know, foul play involved, but I think that would be premature, you know, at this point, we just don't know what what to deal with.
0: And I think four of us on this call, or maybe I'm sure we probably have, you know, I've covered car accidents before. I used to uh, be a news side reporter briefly, and I used to have to go out and cover accidents and fires and things. And um, I'm, I'm speaking for myself, but my guess is for all four of us, I'm thankful that I don't have to chase down stories like this. Because as the information's flying, and especially on somebody so um, famous, everybody hanging on every little word. As I'm proof of uh, throughout this podcast, mentioning the wording and the the vernacular that's being used. uh, That to, to have to that's a high wire act to have to cover that and not get anything wrong. And you're probing into people's private lives. And what do you deserve to know? What don't you deserve to know? And this is why I got into sports journalism.
3: Hey, I mean, two years ago, you know, Jim Beheim got into a an accident where, right. uh, you know, someone died as a result of it. And uh, there was no wrongdoing ruled in the accident on, on Beheim's part. Um, and, and there was just a lot of assumptions in that case. Obviously, he's not a, anywhere near Tiger Woods on a global scale. But in the community, he's obviously the most, you know, probably the most famous person in, in central New York. Um, and he... You know there were a lot of guesses. Was he drinking? Was it this? Was he texting? Um, you know he doesn't drink alcohol. And uh, you know I think they said he wasn't. Definitely wasn't texting. There was again no wrongdoing. And so even now you'll see on, on Twitter, you know Jim Bam killed the guy. You know pretty much almost every day from from other teams or or you know I think I even just saw it Monday during the Duke game uh, in in big numbers too. And so you see a lot of to your point earlier on on Twitter, you know not not being ideal in some ways. And that's certainly a situation where you just sometimes wish you didn't even have to deal with the Twitter part of it.
0: Yeah. Well, Matthew, thanks for doing this. Anything you want to add that we didn't ask you about?
3: No, I'm looking forward to, you know, things reopening maybe this summer and and, uh, getting out to, to, to Buffalo. I wanted to check out, uh, Letchworth. I know that's somewhat close, not really, maybe. Um, so if you have any good, good food recommendations, definitely. Yeah. Uh, well, once you I get mean, to Buffalo, yeah. Out slack. there, out <laughs> by
0: Letchworth, I can't tell you, I've never been, and it's a regret of mine. I need to get out there because every time I see pictures of it, I'm like, that's exactly where I'd want to be. But then the drive is just long enough that I get, you know, I find something else to do with my day. Um, but, yeah, the, get out here. Let's uh, have a couple of beers. Uh, stay overnight so you don't have to drive back to Syracuse. And uh, we'll take you to a couple of the wing joints or the WEC places. Um, and uh, we'll show you around Western New York. Yeah, get some goffin. Uh, Matt's a huge golf. Oh, let me also make it a point, since we mentioned it before we came on. I did call Matthew Gutierrez Matt by accident, which I thought I might do because of Matt Fairburn being on here. Matthew goes by Matthew. And other Matthew goes by Matthew. And I just want to put out a blanket apology to Matthew Fairburn for all the times that I call him Matt. I've never checked with him and to see if he he could be incredibly offended by the fact that I call him Matt. He's never had the balls to stand up to me about it. So right now is your chance. Am I Am I wrong to call you Matt?
1: I've been called a lot worse. So, uh, I'm fine. I'm fine with, uh, I'm fine. He's been too
0: polite to put me in my place.
1: I go by it professionally because I assume my, my mother would appreciate it. Um, but I don't, people call me all sorts of things. So I just kind of roll with it. I call you MF.
0: (laughs) Should I call you Matthew from now on? Let's put, let's go ahead and put this to rest. Sure. Do I continue to call you Matt or do I call you Matthew?
1: Unless there's a more impressive Matthew on the show, then you, Matthew belongs to the, the, the power rankings. Matthew's I see. For so the you want to be Matthew. Matt is fine. I mean, it doesn't really matter. I've been Matt. I've been, I've been. No, out, but I've,
0: you just said you want Matthew. Sure. Okay. We'll see now <laughs> I for, so how long have we known each other? And I've been calling you Matt for five years. And you prefer Matthew. This is like when Stephen Hauschka didn't want to correct anybody when they were spelling his name wrong. Or uh, Keenan McCardell, uh, when he, was, uh, he went by Mcardle for 15 years. And then finally, somebody interviewed his dad. And he was like, oh, by the way, his name is McCardell. And then they went and talked to him. be like, hey, you've been in the NFL. You've led the league in receptions. And he's like, I'm just happy to be in the league, man.
1: That's kind of how I feel. I'm just happy to be here.
0: Hockey players. I mean, I did a whole story on it with all the Sabres who went by mispronounced names because they didn't want to correct anybody. All right, Matthew, two Matthews. See, we got to the bottom. Matthew Gutierrez being on this show has solved a a rift that I didn't even know existed.
1: We're all better for it.
0: Matthew G. Thank you. Thank you for your service. (laughs) And, uh, and for your thoughts on Syracuse and golf.
3: Appreciate you guys. Let's, let's do it again. Maybe down the road here.
0: I'd like that. I'd like that. Matthew Gutierrez from the athletic covering Syracuse, covering golf all around problem solver.